Welcome to the Restoration Church weekly podcast. Please take a minute to subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. And be sure to download the Church Center app. This is the best way to stay connected and up to date with all that's happening at Restoration Church. Most importantly, we hope the following message will help draw you closer to Christ. Thanks for listening. Hey, we are in week two of a series that we have titled, Let's Talk About You and Me, which of course is part of the lyrics of the song, Let's Talk About Sex by Salt and Peppa, which came out in 1990. So I'm aging myself here a little bit. Several months ago, I asked you to submit questions of which we spent seven weeks answering, but about a third of those questions that you submitted all had to do with human sexuality. And so I was like, I can't just cover that topic in one message. We're going to spend all of July talking about it. Good times. <clears throat> if you haven't, I would really encourage you to catch up on last week's message by subscribing to our podcast. You can find it on Facebook or YouTube or the media tab of our webpage. What we discussed last week is really going to establish a foundation for a lot of what we talk about. And so if you haven't already, I would encourage you to go back and listen to that, even after listening to this one. Last week I mentioned that my role as a pastor is to lead people to Jesus, the one who gifts us with his Holy Spirit to convict us, and the one who mediates his faithfulness before the Father and judge on our behalf. Notice that my role in this scenario is not to be the judge. My role is not to be the one who convicts. My role is to guide you to Jesus in love, because only Jesus can change people. I truly believe that. I, I, he, he may work through people to change other people, but it is Jesus ultimately that changes people. And so my hope is to introduce you to Jesus and to encourage you and to spur you closer to him. The reason that this may seem hard to grasp, the, the reason that something like this may seem foreign, is because if you were a Christian who came to age, you know, around 1995 or, or before that, you, you were maybe, a, you know, in middle school in 1995 or so, Anytime before that, you probably were taught a version of the Christian faith that looked something like this. There's a fortress where we're safe and where we're right and where we're on the inside. It was with good intention that the modern era of Christianity in the 1990s taught this as they were attempting to protect Christianity from what were perceived to be evils of the radically changing philosophies of the world. The world on the outside is evil. Come inside the church where it's safe. Come inside the church where you're protective Come inside the church where we don't dress like the world and speak like the world and talk like the world and act like the world and sin like the world. That evil outside world, we're safe in here. Now, this, of course, isn't true of everyone, but many Christians hid away in churches with their pressed dresses and their suits and ties, crossing all their T's and dotting all their I's. And then go home, and what would they do? They'd sin just like the rest of the world. It was eventually revealed that many of those who claimed to be on the inside were acting in ways that even those on the outside found horrifying and appalling. You know, we often look at like the Catholic Church and we think of all the sex scandals and the sex abuse that happened in the Catholic Church, but you need to know that the Protestant Church was equally at fault through the 1900s. The modern era of the church, the egregious and widespread sexual abuse, theft, and fraud happened both within the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church. Maybe it's this disgust that is some of your story. Maybe that's why you left the church and you have a hard time trusting the church. Maybe that's why you're hesitant to come back into a faith community. 
So I want you to know that the New Testament model of following Jesus is nothing like this. This is the Pharisaic model of following Jesus. This is what Jesus hit his head up against constantly in the New Testament, people with this kind of mentality. A New Testament model of what it means to <clears throat> follow Jesus isn't about who's in and out and, you know, based on behavior and man-made laws about who's on the inside and who's on the outside. It, it looks something like this, where Jesus is at the center. And there are those that are close to him and those that are far from him. But we're all moving in one direction or another. We're all moving closer to Jesus or we're moving away from Jesus. Some that appear to be closest to Jesus, like this guy right in the middle, because their knowledge and, and you know, they're in a position of, of authority. They're in a position of, of religious power. They know everything about the Bible. They know everything, all the theology, right? You put them on Bible Jeopardy, they're going to be rock stars, right? Like, they know everything about Jesus and about religion and about following after him, but their hearts, like the Pharisees, right? They knew everything about the law, but their hearts were not directed towards God. And so they were actually walking away from him, even though it appeared that they were very close to him. And then there are some like those, this woman up in the corner, right? She's really, really far from, from Jesus. She's living a questionable lifestyle. She's trapped in addiction. She swears a lot. She smokes. She chews. She's hanging out with all the wrong crowds. But she's moving towards Jesus. She, she may not be mature in her faith, but she's moving towards Jesus because she has a heart that is bent towards Jesus in love for our, him in love for others. And it is my privilege, it is my honor and appeal to you to surrender more of your trust to Jesus. At the end of the day, if that's what I accomplished, then we've accomplished something significant. If you could surrender more of your trust to Jesus every single day, only then will you become more like him. And so it is my honor and privilege to introduce you to him, to edify you, to teach you about him and challenge you ultimately, but it is his spirit who does the conviction. It is his spirit who ultimately does the transformative work in each of our lives. And so one of the things I get to encourage you with is that every single day, and I, I, man, I just, I rejoice in this truth every single day, that every day God meets me and he meets you exactly where you are, without shame that you should be any further than you are on your journey. God does that for me, I should then do it for you. If God does that for me, if this is how God treats me, then I should embrace you the exact same way that where you are on your journey i should not expect you to be any further than you are god full of mercy meets us where we are and graciously encourages us onward encourages us to mature encourages us to grow and so today as we continue our conversation on you and me i want to talk about scripts a little bit more a script is the way that we understand ourselves and our lives uh, think of an actor reading from a script, right? They, they are told how they are to think and feel and act and relate to others in that particular scene. And as people in real life, we are handed scripts all of the time, and we need to acknowledge this. We are handed scripts about how to act and feel and think and relate to others all of the time. And we have a choice then as to what script we choose to read from and which, what script we are going to read from. What script we are going to take our cues for understanding ourselves and our lives from. And our world is gladly giving us, and especially our younger generations, scripts to read about what it means to be human and what it means to be sexual beings. About a year ago, my daughter Evelyn and I were having a daddy-daughter date at her favorite restaurant, Chili's. <laughs> she actually really does love Chili's. Um, and uh, and she, she had a, a sheet of paper, and she had some crayons. And what do you do as a four-year-old with a sheet of paper and crayons? What do you color? A rainbow, right? Of course. You color a rainbow, right? And so the server comes and she's like, girl, you keep being proud. And I'm like, 
You know, I don't think that's what Evelyn had in mind when she decided to draw a rainbow. Emily and I were just in Camden Yards in Baltimore watching the Twins destroy the Orioles a couple last weekend. And, um, and they have literally a 100-foot rainbow flag out in the middle of the outfield. There are rainbows everywhere. I'm not making a judgment on that. I'm just saying there is a script that is being told us, right? We're given a script about what it means to be sexual beings within our society. Just this week, my 10-year-old daughter Sophie and I were driving and we were listening to Taylor Swift, right? She asked to listen to Taylor Swift. Taylor Swift is currently on tour, and she is one of the few artists that brings generations, right? Like, there's people my age who love her. There's people my daughter's age who love her, right? Who bring generations together to listen to her music. But listen closely to her songs, and she is informing every generation about what it means to be a sexual person. And it's not just her. All music has incredible influence over its listeners. And so music, right, lyrics of songs have incredible influence These are scripts that we are being told about what it means to be humans on this planet. 76% of her songs are about love and relationships. I read this, I read this article this week, 76, but it was, it was interesting though, because they also said 38% of her songs are about breakups, right? So, um, the, the math doesn't really work out, but I guess breaking up is part of that narrative, right? The love and relationship relationship narrative. But one of the songs we listened to, I can't remember entirely what it was. It had this line about his clothes are on the side of my bed, right? And so I'm like, pause. Okay. Sophie, what does that mean? Well, I guess they're naked. Okay, let's talk about that. Does Sophie even understand what's being fed her? So I use that opportunity to teach her. Because if you want your pastor, father, lecturing you on being properly human... Well, I guess that we would have to leave the world if you don't want those lectures, right? Because the scripts are everywhere. We're constantly being formed from our society about what it means to be a sexual being on this planet. It's easy to parent from inside the fortress where we're safe and the world is evil and it's not influencing our kids. Protecting is easy. Parenting is harder. Retailers are doing the same thing with the merchandise they sell. Maybe you heard about the ordeal that Target is having for having sold LGBTQ-themed clothing. Disney, television, movies, right? They're all informing our kids. Disney, along with most television and movie studios, have already admitted to adding queerness into their productions whenever they can. This is a script, right? They're informing us about what it means to be human, about what it means to be sexual beings on this planet. But perhaps here's what's most alarming, is that the average two-year-old will spend two hours a day in front of a screen. That grows into middle school where the average seventh grader is spending nine hours a day on screens. And every day, as they are watching YouTube and Netflix and Disney Plus and everything else that they are being fed, right? They are being fed constantly inundated with scripts. Constantly inundated with scripts. And and I don't just mean about what it means to be sexual being. I mean about how to live life, how to be a friend, how to be respectful, what it means to to, to live, what it means to be generous, what matters, what's important, how we should define ourselves, where we should place our self-worth. All of these things are being told us through these mediums that we are constantly, constantly, constantly feeding on. And does anyone want to guess how much of that is monitored? How much of that is monitored, meaning that their parents or their guardians know what they're viewing? 
knowing what scripts their children are being presented with, knowing what scripts their children are consuming. 2%. 2% of parents know what scripts their children are reading about what it means to be a human. Friends, the world is gladly handing our children scripts to read about how to understand ourselves. How to understand their sexuality, how to understand their feelings, and where to place their identity as humans. Our children who are in the throes of hormonal confusion, whose brains are in development, whose prefrontal cortexes are far from being developed, who are trying to navigate self-worth and how to be accepted and where to place their identity, they're receiving scripts to read, and the vast majority of parents aren't helping them read the scripts. As parents and guardians, we can either bury our heads in the sand and pretend that if we don't see it, if we don't hear it, then it won't have an effect on them. Just ask the Duggar family how well that worked out for them. Or we can open our eyes to the realities our children are facing and navigate together the confusion of the world. As I said last week, just because parents don't talk about sexuality doesn't mean sexuality isn't talked about. I mentioned before that the fastest growing parenting style in America is called functionally absent parents. It's not that parents aren't being parents. It's not that they don't have children. It's not that they're handing their parental responsibilities over to the screen, over to coaches, over to teachers. Just because parents aren't active in raising their kids does not mean that their kids aren't being raised, however. If we don't help our children navigate life and present them with a different script, they will buy into the script the world is presenting them. What other choice do they have? If we do not help our kids navigate the scripts that they are presented with, they will buy into the scripts that they are presented with. The point is not that Christians shouldn't listen to Taylor Swift. The point is not that we shouldn't look at rainbows or that we should ban Disney or that we shouldn't shop at Target. The point is not that we should hide away in our fortress where we're safe from the perceived evils of the world. The church tried that for the better half of the last hundred years. And it, all it did was create a post-Christian world. Have you ever noticed how light has very little effect in the light? Like adding more light to this room may make it a little brighter, but it's not going to have a great effect. It's not going to change much. Adding light to an already lit up room is not going to do well. When does light become effective? When it's in the darkness. That is when light becomes effective. That is how light shines. Hope can only heal when it embraces despair. And so we're not going to win the culture war. So we simply need to help those entrusted to us navigate the world. We, we need to be asking questions without shame of those we are entrusted with, processing with them what they're hearing and what they're watching and how we're being influenced and how we are called then to understand ourselves in light of what we are experiencing. Or in other words, we need to disciple our young ones. And before we do that, we need to take some time looking at the logs in our own eyes. And before we do that, we need to look at the lack of discipleship in the adults and before we do that, we need to look at our own journey with Jesus before we start bringing other people along for the ride. So there are a ton of scripts that we are handed about how to act and relate and feel and think in the world. Last week, we discussed one of those scripts that the world is telling us. The, the world is essentially telling us that we're just animals and that we should just succumb to whatever urge that we have and cave into whatever sexual urge that we may experience. But the church has historically offered scripts as well. 
mainly that sex, sex is bad. That's the one that we talked about last week, that sex is bad. But both of these are dehumanizing. And they resist God's vision for human sexuality. And that vision, as we discussed last week, is this. The Bible tells us that God created the physical world and called it good. And the climax of this work was the making of two naked people with male and female genitalia who became husband and wife by their covenant and their sexual activity. They were fused together as one and encouraged to reconnect and be reminded of that bond over and over again through the pleasure of sex and exclusive faithfulness, not for a night or a year or until the emotions wind down, but for life. Now, we parsed this out uh, last week, and we quickly came to the conclusion that nobody lives up to this. It's a standard that nobody lives up to. There are no saints when it comes to human sexuality. No one can take the moral high ground when it comes to human sexuality. Everybody's sexuality is broken. Part of our challenge is that not only does the world in which we live in laugh at this, though, they think it's a joke to the world, right? The world is not our friend or our encourager when it comes to God's vision for human sexuality. When the world looks at this, they're just like, yeah, that's antiquated. That's outdated. We're far more progressive than that. That's old school. We're not going to buy into it. But here's what I've experienced. And maybe you've experienced this too. When we drift from this, and we do all the time, it leaves a painful wake in its path. This is what happens when we drift from God's intention with all things in life, not just sexuality, with all things in life. The world wants us to believe that restrictions, right, especially sexual restrictions, are oppressive and that we should fight to be liberated from them. But ask a fish if being liberated from the water is freeing or destructive. The wisdom of the Bible and most human experiences state that restrictions are the secret to deeper, more flourishing, more joy. It may not seem all that harmful to deviate from God's vision for human sexuality, but wisdom is known by her children. Wisdom is known by the outcome. Wisdom is known by the consequence. Wisdom is known by the result. And sometimes the result of deviating from God's vision for human sexuality is drastic. Did you know that 15 to 50,000 people are forced into sexual slavery every year just in the United States? In fact, there are more people in forced slavery today than any other time in world history. 4.5 million people throughout the world are sexually exploited, most of them under the age of 15 years old. Prostitution is a $99 billion industry worldwide. One in five relationships experience infidelity, and 99% of relationships that do end in catastrophe. One million fetuses are aborted each year. There are a lot of reasons why abortions happen, but statistically about one-third of abortions take place because there isn't a stable partner to help raise the child. It happened during a one-night stand. We weren't really that committed to each other. This uh, proof that we were you know, pregnant tore us apart, and so we didn't have stability within our relationships. We want sex, we just don't want the consequences that come along with sex. Often children are born without two supportive parents or no supportive parents or parents who fight all the time or parents who are absent or they're divorced or not all these scenarios, of course, assume that the life of that child is going to be painful for many of them. For many of them, it is. Sex also binds people together. Science would confirm this, not just, you know, theology and and religion would confirm this. Physically, emotionally, mentally, when two people have sex, it's not just two bodies coming together, but two whole people with souls 
and emotions and minds and thoughts and feelings and dreams and hopes and desires and histories and insecurities and futures coming together, two whole people coming together. That was part of God's intention in the first place. But when you're not attached because, you know, it was just a fling or one night stand or, you know, we just approached it casually. We leave a part of ourselves with that person and science would confirm that attachment will be harder in the future. We're kind of like sticky notes, right? So if you just keep attaching and unattaching and detaching, attach and detach, attach and detach, attach and detach, eventually you're not going to be sticky anymore. And what we're seeing now is generation of young people who have a lot of sex but have no intimacy. Two connection, right? No attachment. No, and they don't know how to relate to others on a human level. This is partly why there's an epidemic of loneliness among millennials and younger generations. Whenever you deviate from God's vision for human sexuality, you will leave a wake of destruction behind you. Sometimes it's drastic. Sometimes it's very subtle. When I was in seventh grade, um, a friend of mine invited me over to his house after school because he had just gotten the internet and he wanted to show me what he had stumbled upon. And so as a 12-year-old that afternoon, I had my first experience with pornographic material. And neuroscience tells us that when these images are consumed, they create an expectation for your next encounter. When pornography is viewed, dopamine, the pleasure hormone, fires in the brain. It's the same experience when taking drugs or when winning while gambling, right? These These are addictive because it feels good and you want more. But when the brain experiences a dopamine surge, in order to create the same level of euphoria, you need more. To get to the same baseline, you need more. In our case, the next pornographic image needs to be more extreme, more graphic, or different at the very least. You let this escalate and you'll find yourself doing unthinkable things to gain the same level of euphoria that you once had. If you study sex abusers, pedophiles, rapists, serial killers, excessive pornographies will be a main theme in all of their stories. But what's interesting and disturbing is that sex psychologists are beginning to recognize how pre-porn is fueling the global multi-billion dollar sex industry. We live in a pre-pornographic society, they would say. A pre-pornographic society where overt, explicit sexual images are normalized and constantly put before society. Firing dopamine in people's brains around sexual stimulation frequently. We may not find, you you probably don't even recognize this is happening, but here's, here's what they're saying. We may not find a ton of harm when going to Walgreens and seeing a magazine rack full of half-naked people. There's not a lot of harm when you go to the beach and there's a wall of half-naked people in front of you. Or magazines arrive in your mailbox and there's half-naked people in advertisements within them. Or we watch movies and you notice that just, they just drop explicit sexual scenarios or sexual images into movies all the time. doesn't even really serve the plot line all that well, but they're there for us. All of these create dopamine surges. And remember, to get the same level of euphoria, you need greater stimulation. So in other words, our society is subtly pushing us towards the porn industry to the point where the average 10 to 12 year old is viewing pornography mainly online. What neuroscience also tells us is that these types of images create a mold that you begin to sift other human beings through. 
It's, in, it's interesting that Gen Zs are the least sexually active with other people generation in 70 years. Younger people are having less sex than any other generation in 70 years. Mainly because fewer and fewer of them are in actual relationships. Mainly because the sex industry has created unattainable standards of attraction. When what we find attractive is photoshopped images, literally fake people, real people cannot compete. Which either means people don't engage relationships or they're often unhappy in their relationships because the other person literally cannot meet the standard that they have devised in their own brain. So picture a group of high school boys standing by their lockers when a girl walks by. One of the boys asks, how do you rate that? And then they took turns assigning numerical values to the various parts of her anatomy and discussing in great detail how they evaluate her physical attributes. Scenario happens all the time. Campuses all across the world. Every day, it's a pastime for some There are television shows and websites and endless discussions devoted to deciding who's hot or not. Tinder, the number one dating app, is essentially a hot or not app. Is this person physically attractive to me? Sweet, let's hook up. That's essentially what Tinder is about. Back in my day, you had dating shows like The Dating Game or The Love Connection, and they were based on, what, personality and compatibility. Today, the top dating shows are Temptation Island, F Boy Island. <laughs> Love Island. Why are all these about islands, right? Of course, they're all about islands. Love Island. <clears throat> Too Hot to Handle. And of course, The Bachelor. None of these shows end in sustained relationships because they're not about love. They're about lust. <clears throat> I haven't seen most of these shows I mentioned, but I've read a few articles. And they all admit That from the casting to the prompts, they are interested in lust, not love. The producers know that when lust is triggered in the brain, a dopamine surge happens. And what do you do when a dopamine surge happens? You feel good about it and you come back for more. All of this is hovering around what I actually want to say this morning. There are other scripts that the world and the church would have us read. One of them is this. People are fundamentally objects. So don't be ashamed to treat them as such. This is what every pornographic and pre-pornographic image promotes. This is fundamentally what Tinder promotes. This is what modern dating shows promote. But we all know that this is horrible, isn't it? Some of you know what it feels like to be reduced to an object. Some of you are in relationships where your humanity isn't valued, only your body is valued. The person you're with doesn't actually care about you, only about what you can give them. Tons of people objectify themselves by the images they post about themselves on social media. They bought into the script that attention they receive is worth the price of their dignity. All of it is degrading. All of it is violating. It does something to our soul. We're becoming less human. We're becoming an object, a thing, when we do this. When you cut down a tree, you don't consider how the tree feels. When you kick a rock, you're not concerned with how the rock feels. When you tear a shirt, you're upset maybe that you lost a shirt, but you're not concerned over the shirt's feelings because they're what? They're just things. They don't have feelings. For some of you, that's your story. You've been in situations, you've been in relationships where you weren't valued. Your body was valued, but you as a human being with a soul and a mind and emotions and a personality, you weren't valued. 
And that night or that season cast a shadow over your soul that you are still trying to illuminate. And again, it's so subtle, but we live in a world that promotes and romanticizes the reduction of people to objects. My friends, we're not objects. We're human. See, in the beginning, God created us in his image, and he breathed into us his own breath, his own spirit, himself. He didn't do this with the animals. He didn't do this with the angels. He created humans unique. He gave humans a part of himself. We are humans because we house God's essence. Something of God has been placed in us. There is a divine flame that generates dignity and self-worth in every single person simply by the fact that we are human. And when we strip others of their dignity, when we strip others of their humanity, of the image of God in them, through objectifying them, history shows that there are grave consequences when we do this. There's a story in scripture that we're all familiar with, even if you didn't grow up in church, even if you're not a Bible reader, you're familiar with this story. It's a very classic story that I want to take a really quick look at. Genesis 5, 1 through 3, tells us this. When God created man, he made him in his likeness. He created them male and female and blessed them. And when they were created, he called them man. When Adam and Eve lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. So remember, Adam and Eve, they are created in God's image, meaning that they were given God's essence. We function like God functioned. We loved, but that image was skewed in all of us, right? Sin distorted that image in all of us. It was twisted. And now what we pass on from generation to generation is a broken, sinful image. We pass on to our children our image. This is an intentional parallel that the author of Genesis is making. Initially, we were children, right? We are sons and daughters bearing God's image. And although we no longer do that completely or perfectly, we are human because God's essence still resides in every single one of us. It's still true. We were made in God's image. We were like God. We lived like God, functioned like God, loved like God. And the seed of God's image still resides in every single one of us. Now, however... We are children bearing our earthly, sinful parents' image. And we live like our parents, function like our parents, and are selfish like our parents. We are sinful. But we're told that the very first thing God did when sin entered the world is that he gave uh, sinful humanity enmity. It's this deep-seated hatred towards the chaos, towards the sin, towards the evil that we find in all of us. God placed a deep-seated hatred for sin, a repulsion for sin. He placed in every single one of us a conscience that told us when we were drifting, deviating from God's intentions. And in Genesis 5, we have a genealogical record for which most people find really boring, but whenever you come across a genealogy in Scripture, you actually need to probably pay attention because there's only limited space on ancient goat skin and tablets, and so to put a list of names must mean something significant. We're told that fathers bore sons who were made in their parents' image, who bore sons who were made in their parents' image, who bore sons who were made in their image. Over and over and over again in Genesis 5, you see see this genealogy, sons born in their parents' image. They obviously bore daughters too, by the way, but daughters, again, limited, limited space on tablets and goatskin. Daughters were property. And so you didn't get the real estate that sons did. So when men began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. This concerned God. God was concerned that the sons of God, the, the, the people who were still embedded with his image, who had that root of love, who were still humble enough to see that they were made in God's image and they weren't entirely selfish, right? They had not completely drifted so far that they were not too far to be redeemed. These people who had a, a humility about them, 
God was concerned that they began to lust after women, the daughters of Eve. God was concerned to the point where he said, my spear will not contend with them forever, for he is corrupt, and his days will be 120 years. It grieved God so much to see his people, the the people claiming his name, the people bent on love, the people wrestling with God's spirit to begin to look at another lustfully. Humanity began to objectify one another. I mean, lust is one of the most subtle sins, but it is one of the ugliest sins that there is. Reducing another to an object strips them of the image of God in which they were made. It strips them of their dignity. It strips them of their humanity. And it looms over them, diminishing them to nothing. That is what lust essentially does. Lust invaded the hearts of his people to the point that they abandoned God for the sheer desires of their heart, the sheer desires of their eyes, the sheer desires of their appetite. Lust was a key factor in why the flood wiped humanity off the face of the earth. God is obviously heartbroken when we so willingly objectify one another. God is so heartbroken when we objectify one another, when we don't consider the image of God in another, and when we, when we fail to treat one another with dignity. But we live in a society that celebrates the very thing that most prominently breaks God's heart, the degradation of people to objects. And we're not going to win the culture, we're friends. We're just not. But we can choose the scripts we read from. And we can coach our children in navigating their world as we together read from a different script. Before I tell you what that new script is, that different script is, let me quickly introduce you to one other script, a script that the church has largely promoted around the sexuality conversation over the years that may feel drastically different, but ultimately ultimately ends at the same place as the script that we're all just objects. Here is the script that the world has tried to spin throughout the generations as well. Sex is mostly a theological issue. And because of that, we will scream about sex even if the Bible only whispers about it. I mean, we don't scream about greed. You know there's over 2,000 verses in the Bible condemning greed. But greed is an American pastime. So, like, I mean, greed is like how the church survived for thousands of years. And so we can't condemn greed because then we're just pointing the finger at ourselves but we'll shout about sex all day long even though the bible only whispers about it there's a few places genesis 1 genesis 18 leviticus 18 romans 1 first timothy 1 first corinthians 6 7 matthew 19 that's about it you want to have a conversation on sex you have maybe six or seven passages in all of scripture to talk about the bible whispers about it but we like to shout from the rooftops about it But when our conversations about sex and sexuality become more about theology and biblical law than they are about people, you need to see that too is dehumanizing. The world wants us to tell us that we're just object to be used, and the church often wants to tell us that we're issues to be fixed. Both fail to elevate our humanity to the standard God demands that we start from. Both fail to lead with love. And so there is another script, and this is the script I want you to allow to be embedded deep in you, deep into your heart, deep into your mind, deep into your psyche. This is God's script. You are human, made in my image, he would say. Worthy of dignity and love. You're not an object. You're not an issue. Don't treat others that way, and don't reduce yourself to one. Know your worth, and know my love. 
Start your journey from there. See, when we start seeing people as humans with inherent dignity made in the image of God, we will start seeing that our responsibility must always be love. I'll invite Emily forward. She's going to sing a final song for us as we conclude our time together. You can start <clears throat> helping to navigate. If you, if, you, if you think about this message and you're like, you know what, I've done a pretty bad job helping the people that have been entrusted to me navigate the culture, navigate the sexuality conversation. I've done a pretty bad job helping my children, my grandkids, the kids that have been entrusted to me navigate the world. You can start today. You don't have to say, well, you know what, they're, they're too old now. It would just be awkward to enter into that conversation. Well, you know what, it's going to be awkward if you make it awkward. But if you just step into it with confidence and say, you know what, I, I'm gonna, I'm, I need to apologize to you. Because here's how, here's how the world told us to be human. Here's how society is telling us to be human. And, and, and I know that whenever we deviate from God's ways of being human, then we're always going to hurt and we're always going to hurt others. And I have let you drift off into that without conversation, without help, without navigation. And so can we start afresh? Can I start helping you navigate this? You can start today. If you are responsible, if you've been entrusted with people, you can start today. And if you've been wounded to those who have been wounded, maybe somebody has reduced you to an object. Maybe in a relationship, maybe even now, you feel like you're being reduced to an object. There's healing for that, too. I was able to witness, I wasn't able to be present, but I was able to witness um, a group of people. They were standing in a field. Uh, This is a few years ago, and they all had a balloon. And the balloon represented all the pain that they had experienced and all the pain that they felt. And it wasn't just sexual pain, it was all sorts of pain. Pain of loss, pain of rejection, heartbreak. But a lot of it was the wounds, right? I've been objectified or I've been hurt. And as a symbolic gesture of their healing, right? They'd all experienced this this profound grace, right? This this is a gathering of, of Christian people for the most part, and they'd all experienced the grace of God to put them back together and to heal them and to meet them exactly where they are and not expect them to be any further on the journey than they are, but they, they release those balloons. And I know there's a lot of environmentalists among us who are like, how dare they? But like, let, let that not be the point of this, okay? And it was a symbolic gesture that these are gone. It's been taken away. But the, the reality is, I think what a lot of them experienced was that, yeah, it was taken away, but then they went back into some of those similar lifestyles and they went back into some of those similar situations and some of those similar experiences and they kept going back into those things that hurt them. And what I would tell them, you know, as, as they drift, right, they, they came back to the road and they walked faithfully and then began to drift again. And whenever you drift, you're going to hurt, right? Whenever you deviate from God's intentions, then you're going to leave a wake of destruction in your path. What I would tell them is that God never runs out of balloons. There are always more balloons. And God is eager to give them away. You don't have to stay trapped in the hurt that you've experienced or the hurt that you have put on other people. You don't have to stay there. Move towards Jesus. He will heal you. Move towards Jesus. His grace will redeem you. Move towards Jesus. He can restore you. I'm going to say prayer for us, and then Emily's going to sing this song, and I would just encourage you to let the song be a prayer. A prayer of healing, 
and a prayer of your surrender and greater trust in Christ. Heavenly Father, I know that a lot of people in this room have experienced tremendous hurt. And again, not just sexual hurt, but all sorts of hurt. As we have deviated, we have, we have drifted from your intentions for what it means to be human. We haven't loved well. We've objectified others. We've been objectified, Father, all of it. We have bought into the narrative that we're just objects to be used, and it hurts. It hurts not only when I experience it from others, but it hurts when, when I do it to others, Father. We have left wakes and wakes. We have left mountains of destruction in our paths. And so, Heavenly Father, I, just, I, want, I want to thank you for your embrace of each of us and that we were never too far away. Father, if there's even a semblance of longing to be near you, Father, you will run and grab us and you will urge us and plead with us to move closer into your healing, to move further into your healing, to move deeper into your restoration. And so, Father, there may be some lies that the devil wants to tell us that, that we're too far gone, that we've done too many things, that we've been abused too much, that all we are is an object and we've been reduced and that's all we are. And we've maybe believed that from time to time, Father. And I just want to call the devil the liar that he is. And I want to proclaim your goodness, Father. And I want to open up our ears. That's a prayer. Open up our ears to start listening to your voice of love and redemption and healing over us, Father. Your voice of self-worth, your love of acceptance, your voice of of embrace. And as as we trust more of ourselves, as we let go more of our control and we trust more of, of who we are into your very capable care, Father, may you piece by piece put us back together. And I ask all this in the very capable name of Jesus Christ. If you need to talk about this more, I'm happy to chat. Uh, you have my email, ross at restorationchurchpa.org. Happy to have this conversation continue it. We will next week, next Sunday.